tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap. You know what they say about honey bears. You hit me with a flower. He dug up his father, who was recently deceased. I've been told that you've been bold with Harry, Mark, and John. <laughs> Satellite of love. Satellite of love. Satellite of love. Satellite of In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we got a surprise for you tonight. We have an album that uh, probably many of you are familiar with the hit single, but may not be familiar with the entire album. That's right, we're doing Transformers tonight, ladies and gentlemen. I mean Transformer. I, I said too many things on that, didn't I? <laughs> so if you're a dork and you think we're going to talk about robots, um, I'm sorry, we're not going to be doing about that tonight, but I bet there are a lot of uh, shows about that. We're going to be talking about Lou Reed in disguise. Yeah. That's right, Lou Reed in disguise. And... Uh, Actually, you know, he doesn't do much transforming in terms of his appearance compared to all the other glam rock guys. Uh, this is a uh, a pick. Uh, you know, I actually didn't pick this one. Um, Tony, did you pick this one? Uh, no. Okay, so that leaves our very humble producer. And I got a question for Jane Jonathan Rowe. <laughs> what would that be? We all had good mothers. <laughs> we had very upright, fine fathers. Yeah. We grew up in great homes in the fine state of Texas. I did. What are three guys like us doing talking about this album tonight? <laughs> you mean that it's such a uh, album based in New York counterculture and... Um, and things like Not Us. Yes. Things that we have absolutely no experience with whatsoever. Um... That's a very good question, Doug. <laughs> In the way that you uh, kind of surprised me with that. Um, I'm always filled with surprises. <laughs> well, I've uh, I've been a Lou Reed fan for, I guess, since I was in high school. I uh, was introduced to him by a friend of mine by the name of Kim Sauls, and... Uh, it was, I remember just, it was a... I believe he's a listener of the program. He is a listener of the He'll probably be very podcast. happy to hear yeah. that. Um, 
it's okay. So the album that we're talking about tonight, though, is not my favorite Lou Reed album, though I do I like it a whole bunch. I, there's a pattern here where Jam picks an album, and they're very rarely his favorite. That's from true, the but I, I want to. But the thing is, it it's an album that contains two songs that um, changed the world. It just. Well, again, kind of train changed my outlook. We were talking about Roxy Music when I was doing the Roxy. We did the Roxy Music episode and how that song introduced me into a whole new world. This album, or, or two songs in particular, introduced me to the glam rock world. Probably more that were just made me kind of want to wear makeup. <laughs> no, just, just explore that stuff that I kind of, it, we were talking about it. Explore the Platform stuff shoes. that I thought was... Feather boas. Yes. The, 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 the thing that Eyeliner. I thought was taboo, I, I all of a sudden started going, okay, maybe there is something to this. And I thought David Bowie was weird. Not me. I, I was beginning to, in high school, starting to figure out that David Bowie was cool, but it's kind of the in, my introduction to glam. And um, well, it may be a lot of people's introduction to glam. Yeah. How about we start out by defining that genre? That's a good question. Yeah, what is it? It's a it's a genre that um, we talked about. Roxy Music. Roxy Music was kind of in that camp, but. It, I think that when you're talking about glam, you, you have to talk about bands like the New York Dolls. From the United States, you have to talk about T-Rex. Um, where the presentation was becoming a, a big part of it. But there was also a little, they still wanted to keep yeah. that kind of rock and roll part. You're kind of missing a big person in the glam scene. Ian Hunter. How about David Bowie? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and David Bowie. Who? <laughs> Is that the guy at the Alamo? Yeah. Well, well and then, you know, yeah. Ian Hunter, Mott the Hoople. It was. It started off in in uh, England, I guess, and then got brought over to the United States. But I think that of all of the glam guys, Lou Reed stayed the closest to the American side of it. Like it, he wrote about New York, and he did the doo wop elements, and he did you know he, his influences were Dion and the Belmonts, and you know. It, I may be completely wrong, but it seems like he got the play ball and started the game of Foursquare and then walked off the playground while the other kids kept playing. <laughs> Is that wrong? I don't think that's wrong, because if you look at where he went after the Velvet Underground... He uh, got Bowie so into his scene. 
What, there was, now, now let's talk about the glam rock music. Other than the makeup and the fanfare and all the the silliness, uh, the music has something cohesive about it that makes you hear it and you say, "Oh, that's glam rock." What are those elements? It's hard, isn't it? Well, no. <laughs> it I think I think I think a lot of it has to do with the guitar sound, which yeah. is especially the British glam stuff, which is it's. Uh, loud and it's got it's distorted to a certain extent um and it's but it's muffled it's yeah. not like heavy metal no, and, no, no, it's, no. and there's no histrionics a lot of times being played with it the vocals are often sort of detached do they seem almost like a broadway vocal sometimes yeah there is sometimes a, if you're talking like the queen side of glam uh, yeah but even uh even Bowie sometimes could could make you think a little bit about that. Yeah. And he of course Bowie has ten voices, so that's a difficult he thing does. to talk about. Um, but another thing it does is it in Braces androgyny. Like, it does. That's a big theme. You can't. You can't shake the sort of. And that changes the way they sing. Right. Uh, they oh, can inhabit characters. Yeah. That, um, but that. Yeah. That is a vital a part of the glam scene. Is this blurring of of the gender roles? Yeah. I mean, Bowie was coming out wearing feather boas and in fishnets and. Did T Rex ever do that stuff? Uh, I think T-Rex is early enough to where there wasn't a whole lot of that going yeah. on. I, you know, um, that's Tyrannosaurus Rex, by the way. It's, you know, when you talk about Bowie and T-Rex, they, they both had one very common musical influence or musical influence in common. That was Sid Barrett. Emily tries, but misunderstands. She's often inclined to borrow somebody's dreams till tomorrow. There is no other day. Let's try it another way. A Pink Floyd. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I don't know. I mean, Barrett was one of those guys who, while he wasn't androgynous, he sort of had that, that feel to him that he was, that he could easily have sort of. Morphed walk in, uh, yeah. walk that line, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're about to play a game of connections. We probably have a lot of connections with previous episodes, ladies and gentlemen. At this point, we're going to challenge our producer, co-host, and host to name connections with previous episodes. We hope you'll join in, too, even though you'll have to bother the person sitting next to you in the car <laughs> to tell them that you got one right. Uh, I'm just going to go with the most obvious one first. Uh, John Kale. Episode 50. Yep. Who picked that one, Tony? I believe that was a that, Jonathan Jam Rowe pick. Oh, that was right. a me pick. Well, yeah. Uh, John Kale played with Lou Reed in The Velvet Underground. Tony? Yeah. Queen. We've got Queen. 
And the connection is when we were talking about uh, Day at the Races, I mentioned that the, the Queen's debut was being recorded in Trident Studios the same time that Bowie and Lou Reed were working on Transformer. That's right. I didn't remember And that, that uh, hmm. Bowie actually, the rumor was Bowie, or he even said this, that he that Queen asked that him to produce their first album, and Freddie Mercury always denied that he did that. But that was the story, that while they were there recording that, Bowie was possibly going to produce their their debut. Well, the most impossible to believe, but obviously true connection is with the Pure Prairie episode. We ah, that's never right. were able. We have not been able to actually. We'll, we'll get it, it out there. But what yeah. is that connection, Doug? Well, we got Nick Ronson and uh, his great Mick. What I call him? Nick. Didn't I do that before? I think, I think so. you did. Yeah. Sorry, I just want to add. Rono, as he's known. Hey, just say Rono. (laughs) Anyway, he's the brilliant guitar player that was close to half of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. And uh, he produced the strings on Pure Prairie Lake and played some wonderful guitar on that album. And some amazing piano on it as well. I've got another connection. This one's one that I don't know if you guys will get. Kirsty McCall. I know. I won't I get this one. <laughs> so Kirsty McCall was the person who sang the duet with um, Shane Jim McGowan Brown. on the episode we did on the Pogues, Fairy Tale of New, Fairy York. Tale of New York. She and Evan Dando have a cover version of Perfect Day, which oh, is really? a song on Transformers. Transform. How about that? Okay, J.M., that's a great game of connections. Thank you both. Uh-huh. But now I have a question for Jonathan J.M. Rowe, the album picker. Mm-hmm. How is Lou Reed's album, Transformer, different than a album from uh, The Velvet Underground? Um, I would say in many ways, the musicianship is better, not trying to disparage anybody. I, I, I don't think that's disparaging to say that. I think the Velvet Underground would be the first. To admit that. <laughs> what was, was Kale? Kale was really the only. Kale was really the only yeah. school musician on it. Um, it's Reed at this point seemed to be a little bit more into crafting songs as opposed to just making, seeing how much noise they could make. And, um, is he a better singer on this album? I think he's a little bit better singer. Um, I think his voice degraded over the years, but I think this is one of his better uh, singing albums. It has its moments. Yeah. It, it's got so much more arrangement to it than anything that the Velvets did. Now, If you, who's, if who's you get producing? Ronson and Bowie to produce this record, that's cheating, right? It, it, well, maybe not at the time because they weren't as big. A they deal. weren't definitely, yep. was, but were the, not the, as big the, a the deal. talent was there. Well, the only yeah. thing that Bowie had really done at this moment—I mean, he was a big star, and the record company, record label, was willing to give him a lot of rope to yeah. to hang himself on or save himself. But really, the the two of them were instrumental in um, producing uh, Hunky Dory and and the album that shall remain nameless so Alexa doesn't kick on. Uh, <laughs> but that's not a nothing. No, it's not a nothing. And that's evidence of this enormous talent that these two guys are bringing with yeah. them. Well, yeah. and 
Yes, it is. It is. But like, I, we we could probably make an album if those guys are in charge and tell us what to <laughs> well, do. Well, but but um, they were fans, especially Bowie. You're saying they're not fans of ours. <laughs> um, but it's not like Lou Reed's debut didn't have amazing session guys playing with them and have the talent surrounding it. Um, but what they didn't have was someone that knew what to do with Lou. Yeah, that pr- the producer on that album didn't know his way around a around a studio, even though he was a, a, a associate producer or something for RCA. He uh, he, by all all accounts, really struggled with kind of understanding the mo- more complex. Um, I, I yeah. think JM said it when he said that they were fan that. Bowie was a fan. They of understand Lou Reed, Lou Reed and yeah. they that, knew what he was that for. Robinson didn't. Well, you, and, and that's then, one thing I'll say about this album. At the very beginning, uh, people, I guess they <laughs> talk about Lou Reed's limited range and make a big deal out of that. But um, the guy's got a strong voice. It doesn't go a nice high. baritone voice. Yeah, he's he uh, um, he. These guys know what his voice is for. And his voice is one of the best parts of this album, and yeah, you're not supposed to say that about Lou. So I, 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 more than any album we've done since we've been doing this podcast, your Doug, your voice was in my head talking about when you ask that question, what is a voice for? You say, what is a voice for? People talk about it being, you know, does it need to be beautiful? Or no, a voice needs to communicate. It needs to be able to. Um, evoke emotion and do all of that stuff. And I think he hits that more than he misses on this album. And I think you're right. I think those two guys, Ronson and Bowie being fans knew how to draw that. I, I want to, I made, I I made a comparison. I made, you're going to laugh at this, but the difference between Lou and I guess we should talk about Lou Reed's debut, um, a bit. Uh Um, it's just called Lou Reed. Um, and it was a flop. And people were expecting something fairly big at the at the time he recorded it. He was living with his. He had just gotten out of living with his parents. He had, when he <laughs> when he left the Velvet Underground, he essentially gave up on music. Well, you know, he uh, became he started working for his dad, and yeah. he, by all accounts, he was a phenomenal typist. He could type <laughs> things faster. Like he had like something like eighty words a minute. And yeah. ladies and gentlemen, those of you who might not be as old as we are, there was a time where everybody went on a computer learning well, how to type from the time they were four. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to pass over the Velvet Underground stuff, other than to say, really, most of that we talked about on the John Kill episode. But I do think it's worth mentioning because uh, we stopped really talking about it after John Kill left. Yeah. So John Kill leaves, and they still record two albums with Lou Reed afterwards rock and roll um, is just, yeah. but but doug yule gets they bring this guy doug yule in to replace john kale and the whole reason john kale got kicked out was because lou reed lou reed's ego and he went to the other people in the band and said either you you keep me and come with me mm-hmm. and kick john kale out or we're done and they sided with lou reed um anyway they bring this this doug yule guy gets in and he's having the same issues with him he's getting a bit of an ego about he wants this to be it's essentially Lou Reed wants the Velvet Underground to be Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, and it's yeah. not. So, long story short, when they record their um, their fourth album, which was called um, Loaded. Loaded, Loaded, yes, uh, which is by all accounts a great album, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's got um, rock and rolls on rock that album. Despite all the amputations, you know you could. 
That Lou Reed is having none of this. He's he's he feels like the the band is getting more and more out of his control. He's having less of a say in thing. Doug Yule is starting to have more more of a say in stuff. So he there he decides, and he even says this that in order to shake things up, you needed to have an abrupt departure. So they're playing a live show at Max's Kansas City, and he he essentially quits after that. Um, Gets in the car and by the Anthony to Curtis biography he got into a car and went directly to his parents house yeah he moved in with his parents the funny thing about that is that show just happened to be recorded his last show with the velvet underground is recorded and it's released later on an album yeah. called live at max's kansas city which we'll talk about in a, in a little while uh-huh. uh, the velvet underground did release another album when he left called squeeze. But at that point, I think Doug Yule was the only person on that album that had been on a previous Yeah, And even album. he didn't want it to be called the velvet underground, right, but it was, it was, um, but so yeah, he goes to his parents, the, the, the kind of salt on the wound is loaded comes out. The back cover has Doug Yule on it, surrounded by instruments. Lou Reed is listed third in the credits after, <laughs> after Sterling Morrison and Doug and Doug Yule. Um, and, uh, and he's like, oh, geez, really? And then when he listened to it, it was mixed in a way he hated. He felt like they butchered his songs. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, it's what's really interesting is he starts having second thoughts about stuff. And he goes, I don't know if you knew this, he goes to talk to Sterling Morrison about starting the band back up. Oh, really? No. I and Sterling that. Morrison was already, he had, he had really stopped talking to Lou Reed when he would talk to him into kicking John Kale out of the band. They didn't have yeah. much relationship. And he said, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in this. Well, you know, um, that's where we have the Texas connection. What's that? Sterling Morrison. Oh, is he from Texas? No, he came oh. to Texas and became a fisherman and then uh, went to I think he got his PhD at UT. Really? Yeah. How do oh, you become cool. a fisherman? I want to do that. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs> um, but then the other thing about Loaded is it got great reviews. So Lou Reed leaves, and this album gets. And I think it might have been their biggest selling album too, not by much, but Jeez. but it was. What is it that? Just to throw back another connection, uh, <clears throat> JM's favorite producer and keyboard player uh extraordinaire a synthesizer player extraordinaire um brian eno yeah brian eno had oh. a famous quote about the velvet Underground. yeah the velvet. <laughs> not many people heard them but everyone that did formed a band yeah, yeah. so that's supposedly a brian well eno if you player. went back and did a connection i just thought of one that is uh i'm very proud of and i forgot about it what's that <laughs> towns van zant both got electric shock treatment oh, uh, from yeah. uh at the at the will of their parents yeah, that, yeah. Uh, both of them were kind of raised they well off yeah they I, had that uh experiment experience in common that caused a lot of friction with their parents yeah i, I didn't i didn't mean to go down the history route but i just wanted to kind of lay a couple of things because we I, I do think it's worth talking about he he so as he's dialed out of music he ends up getting Going back to New York, he gets involved with this thing called the Collective Conscience, which is a group of, um, I believe, writers, New York-based writers. He meets them through this guy who we've talked about briefly before named Danny Fields, who was everywhere in the yeah. New York scene at that time. He, I'm sorry, he managed the Ramones. Ramones. He managed for a while, I think, the Dolls. Yeah, I was about to say He that. managed. He actually managed the Doors at one point. Um, yeah. 
Anyway, uh, he is, uh, he's all over the place. Anyway, he introduces Lou Reed to this collective conscious. It's, um, a brainchild of Lisa and Richard Robinson. And he starts doing poetry readings and stuff. Um, he ends up playing some of his songs to the, uh, the, the collective salon audience and they, mm-hmm. they get a good, you know, response. And so he's like, okay. Maybe there's some interest here. And it's through these guys, through the Robinsons, he ends up meeting David Bowie at a dinner. David Bowie's in town to sign with RCA. So they go out to dinner, and Angie's there. Ronson's there. Bowie's manager, Tony DeFreeze, is there. And and this is to sign RCA's contract. Um, so they're hanging out, and that's where Lou Reed meets Bowie for the first time. And then they all go and hang out at Max's afterwards. So well, Bowie had heard the Velvet Elvis. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but this is what's funny. <laughs> They go to they after that dinner they go to Max's because Iggy's playing to meet Iggy, um, and uh, and Iggy Pop of course Bowie and Iggy Pop also have a bit of a, of relationship and make make uh, some stuff together as well. So yeah. anyway, um, he ends up getting signed with RCA. Lou Reed does, and and the reason why is because the um, the guy who was uh, Dennis Katz, who was the vice president of A&R for RCA, was the one who signed Bowie. And he he was also at that dinner. And he's like, I, I think we can get Lou Reed. I think Lou Reed can be this guy over here. And so he convinces RCA to sign him. He signed to a two-album solo deal, which isn't a huge contract, but they're yeah. taking a chance on a guy who hasn't been in the music industry for, for a little while. Um, and so that's when he ends up going overseas to London to start recording this album. People say he was overweight and shaggy hair. He just looked like hell. He didn't look like the, you know, the, the spelt you know, Lou Reed. Yeah. We all know with the yeah. veins and everything. Um, all the songs on the first album were all velvet underground outtakes that the band had either recorded or ditched. Like I um, love you and sweet Jane. And but yeah. actually, sweet Jane actually never made it onto anything until it was put live. But yeah, there was wild child, I think was even an outtake. From oh really yeah well this is this is what I was gonna say so he's surrounded by pr- some pretty amazing musicians Steve Howe from Yes Rick Wakeman from Yes Tony K from Yes uh, Caleb Quay uh, that's from another Rick Wakeman would be another uh, connection <laughs> well, when yeah. he on uh, uh, Bowie's album so that's yeah. what I wanted to talk about everyone disparages this group of guys playing on this first Lou Reed album. I don't disparage the musicians at all because Rick Wakeman is all over Hunky Dory and he makes uh, that the piano on Hunky yeah. Dory is great and that's well, all Rick Wakeman. And the same thing with the with I was listening. Don't bring to, up Life on Mars or Tony will be on for half an hour. <laughs> I, love I listened song. to the to the first Lou Reed album and doing research for this and Rick Wakeman at his funkiest. I mean, he's playing. Like, he sounds like Doctor John on some of these songs. But but it's. There's a definite distinction between that album and the one we're talking about tonight. Yeah. And I think everything has to do with the what Doug hit the nail on the head. So um, the pr- producer on that is Richard Robinson, the guy from the uh, Collective Conscious. And he doesn't, A, doesn't really know his way around the studio, and B, he doesn't know what to do with Lou Reed. Yeah. So, but um, still, it's an amazing, there's some great moments in that. I Love You is a great song. Oh. Um, Wild Child's a great song, and so is I Can't Stand It Anymore. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I like that album. It's uh, it's much more hit or miss than the one we're talking about tonight. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, but uh, but it bombs. I mean, it goes nowhere. It's 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 so bad that RCA is thinking about dropping him. Yeah. Uh, they don't, they're, they're like, we, we gave him two albums. We're not sure we want to do the second one. You got to remember though, the only, the other funny thing, RCA at this point, they signed Bowie, they get Lou Reed. They'd been resting on Elvis's coattails for years. <laughs> I mean, that was what they were making, rolling in the dough from. Right. Yeah. Um, so they're not really sure. I think what to do with this guy. And they also extent. created the single. <laughs> That's right. Um, I, I did want to say uh, kind of an interesting thing is while uh, they're recording this album, John Cale's in London and he invites Lou Reed to go to Paris to perform at the Bataclan cu- Club with um, Nico. So John Cale, Nico and Lou Reed get on stage and it has such a profound impact on Lou Reed. He does the same thing to John Cale that he did with Morrison. As he asked, he said, "Hey, can we get the band back together?" Essentially, <laughs> now Nico had already she'd already released three solo albums. John Cale had released at least one at this point and was producing things. Neither one of them had an interest in it, but that should tell you about how what Lou Reed's mindset was in recording his first solo album. I don't think his heart was in it. I don't think he necessarily felt really great about it. Um, and like I said, neither neither did yeah. the did the record company. Well, there's a couple of things we we've glossed over that I think need needs to be uh, explained. First of all, he went to Syracuse University. Uh, he, he talks about his life on the street and talks about heroin. He talks about, but he was raised a upper middle class kid. Uh, he wasn't born on the streets. He was, he studied under some great poet or but he he was he studied poetry and he by all accounts was a pretty bright student especially in in poetry and then he got a job for pickwick records writing like uh beach boy knockoffs so you would go to furniture stores and you would find this like hey you'd find this beach boys album and right next to it would be this surf an album and he would write these kind of like knockoff songs he was doing whatever was hip yeah and so he would just and then he but he invented something called the ostrich guitar which is basically a guitar i mean every string is tuned the exact same it's like a, a guitar just of e strings and they're all tuned the same so he and he just would play this thing to just make it sound weird on and he used it that With sounds like it would sound like crap. I know that's what the point was. To so sound he was like kind of yeah. So he kind of wanted to make it sound a little bit unique. Well, th- that's things. not that unusual. Icky Pop, uh, I don't believe, came from a very bad background. Now the yeah. guy, the other guys in the Stooges did, but Icky yeah. Pop, I think, was a middle class kid. He was a drummer. Yeah. Um, I mean, Joey Ramone's mom owned an art gallery. Yeah. I know she. He grew up in Queens in kind of a lower middle class neighborhood, but yeah, you know. These guys, um, not not to sound too whatever, but it's some of them sort of chose a lifestyle to go into. Exactly, like I'd like to live the life on the streets, so I'm going to. Yeah, and I mean, Lou Reed had some other issues, as Doug mentioned. He he had electroshock therapy. He was struggling with his own sexuality throughout. I think a good chunk of his life. Yeah. Does Um, it seem like he struggled? Yeah. It does. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's where I think that's where the his his sort of um, vibrato to cover up the struggle. That and I think, uh, well, 
I think that also where his viciousness came from as well. Yeah. When you think about, there's a song, not to bring up the Ramones again, but there's a song on the first Ramones album called 53rd and 3rd about a guy who goes out to do, uh, to be a male prostitute. And in order to, and as he's, he gets a John, he ends up killing him to prove himself that he's a man. He ends up killing the John. So the, yeah, there was this, this real weird sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm not bothered by do, you know, doing the, the thing as a male prostitute, but I've got to, pr- I got to make sure that I'm still manly at the end of it. So yeah. I think Lou Reed was, was definitely part of that sort of concept. The Syracuse University professor that J.M. brought up earlier is Delmore Schwartz. Yeah, Delmore Schwartz. Yeah. Who's written, apparently he's written a brilliant uh, book full of short stories. Yeah. And, well, and, he, so, and he saw a lot of promise in well, one of the, Yeah, one of the things that Lou Reed wrote was a book called, or a short story called The, the Gift, where he mails himself to his girlfriend. I think they're overseas, and she's he's in a box, but she keeps trying to open up the box, but she can't do it. So she finally gets an axe, and when she gets the axe, she actually... That sounds kills. like a Lou Reed. That does sound yeah, like a Lou Reed. Happily ever um, after. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I forgot to mention about his sol- first solo album not doing well is that the, at the same time that Max's live Max's Kansas City album was released that same month and does remarkably better than Lou Reed's solo album. <laughs> so he's battling his, yeah. his ghost, essentially, ghost of his yeah. former band. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what people wanted to hear. And the, the this album, the debut album, doesn't sound much like a Velvet Underground album. Yeah. Um, other than Lou Reed singing on it. In the summer of 72, Bowie comes comes back to London. And he's had an immensely successful American tour of, of Ziggy. And he proposes to RCA that he produce Lou Reed's second album. Remember, they were thinking about dropping him. Because of Bowie's involvement, RCA decides they'll take another shot at Lou Reed. Robinson, of course, Richard Robinson's pissed off about this because he feels like he brought Lou Reed back out of obscurity mm-hmm. and that he would be the one producing these these Lou Reed albums, and he feels betrayed by this. So what, right? Here's what's interesting about the the, the period between the second or first and the second album. Uh, as a result of Bowie's involvement, there's a big sort of change in Lou Reed. Blue Reed watching what Bowie did sort of gives Lou gives Reed the ability to talk about his sexuality in a different way. Gives him a little bit of courage to do it. Um, When he goes back to London to start recording, he essentially embraces the whole glam rock lifestyle. At a press conference where they're announcing their partnership, Lou Reed... (laughs) is dressed in a sparkling jumpsuit, six-inch platforms, and has black <laughs> nail polish on. He strolls across the stage, firmly plants his lips on David Bowie's mouth, and then says, this guy's producing my next album. That's how they announce that Bowie is producing the Lou Reed oh, album. that's nice. I'm yeah, sure so, that pissed me um, But, uh, you know, and he even said, there's a quote where he says, this whole glam thing was going on, so I just put myself in that head. It's not like I had very far to go. I have about a thousand cells running around. It's easy. Um, a week after that press conference, Lou Reed goes out and plays with this band, The Tots, that's his backing band, mm-hmm. um, at this show at King's Cross Sound in London. And he's wearing black makeup, a black lipstick, a black velvet suit with rhinestones on it. And people start criticizing him that he's copying Bowie. They don't say, oh, he's doing something new. Like, you, you're, you're with Bowie now. You're copying him. Um, and in his defense, 
he only did that for about three shows. And then he says, you know, it was a big joke. As soon as I was done with it, I went back to the leather thing. So it was, it was the whole looking glam was short lived, except for the cover. Of this well, album. I mean, he did take. Um, so if you listen, if you watch that documentary, he says that he wanted to make his face as completely white as it could possibly. Yeah, he be. put like pancake makeup yeah. on to look like an unface. I think he went emo. He did. Yeah, but so uh, look, this is sort of the perfect triangle here. Yeah, you've got Lou Reed. David Bowie and Mick Ronson. You got Lou Reed, who's this, you know, um, this uptight, sarcastic, smart-ass, aggressive, um, always angry New Yorker. You got David Bowie, who's like this androgynous, exotic Brit. Um, and who's in right, love with New York. And right in between them, you got this guy from Hole, Mick Ronson, who's like the steady, like the steady guy. He's yeah. the guy who's going to get stuff done. Um, I have a question for you two guys before we start talking about this. Is he's the young Rick Ronson's the unsung hero of this album, right? All the albums he's on, All, every album he's on, he is the unsung hero. Even Pure Puri League, which we, we well, keep lamenting that we have not the, put that on. But uh, the difference, one of the things that struck me so much about this album versus that Pure Puri League album is the strings on this album oh, are so subtle and so perfect. And they're a little, we've talked about it when you listen, if we can ever get that episode up, yeah. they're a little over the top sometimes, but they're perfect on this album. They're just absolutely perfect. Um, but what's, what's the other thing that's interesting is this, uh, and I, I want to bring up Ken Scott jam and I want you to talk about him. Yeah. But um, at the, at the same time that they're doing this album, Ronson and Bowie are also recording with Monta Hoople and they're they're rehearsing for a, a couple of shows they're going to do one in New York and one in London. So they're really busy. So there's a lot of times they're not present in the studio and that falls on Ken Scott, who was the engineer of this album, to kind of make up the ground. Yeah. And he uh by all account he he talks about Herbie Flowers having a whole lot to helping him out quite a bit. Like it was Herbie Flowers idea to get the Oompa band coming oh, in. Yeah. And, yeah and, he's uh, uh and he's just for just, we'll talk about him more, but he's the guy who plays the bass on walk on the wall. Side. Yeah. And he plays the tuba on, I think four songs on this album. Uh, Ken Scott, amazing engineer. Uh, he's done so much. He, he's worked with he, Elton John. He was kind of like, uh, there's, there was kind of like Glenn Johns and then there was, Ken Scott, and they were kind of the two uh, engineers, mixers from the 70s. Ken Scott was kind of the, the Trident Studios go to engineer. So he actually worked on some Beatles stuff. Um, but he's mainly, yeah, he's worked on so many albums by Bowie. Yeah, he's he's kind of a legend. He tells a story about how he spent a lot of time in the studio with Lou Reed for this album when the other guys weren't around doing things. And then, um, I don't know, maybe a couple of years, years later, he was at an event and Lou Reed was there and Lou Reed had no idea who <laughs> just completely. Nice. Yeah. Um, I, I've got a, I've got a, um, a stupid analogy I want to talk about. Um, I think of, I think of this as Lou Reed's voice and the songs are like a kind of mediocre, okay, cut of meat. Okay. And so you got to make this taste good in some way. So on the debut album, what do they do? They drown it in ketchup. Yeah. It's edible. Is it good? Eh, it's the, the 
what did they do on this album? Well, they put some nice sides around it. They season it just the right way. They do all these things that are just enough to kind of distract where it's weak and enhance where it's strong. And you've got, I'm talking about the songs and his voice. And, and to me, that's the distinction between the two. It's the same cut of meat. It's just what you do to it to make it palatable or not. So when I think about Lou Reed, the, the, the Lou Reed that I think about is the, is the, Older Lou Reed, the, the Lou Reed of New York. And Romeo wanted Juliet. And Juliet wanted Romeo. And Romeo wanted Juliet. And Juliet wanted Romeo. Lou I Reed. love that album, by yeah, the way. It's a fantastic album. It was uh, the only Lou Reed album I ever owned, actually, was really? New York. Yeah. New Sensations, 1984 <laughs> album. Where he was really playing guitar, his guitar playing had a distinctive sound to it. Um, it, it, it to me, it sounded like Lou Reed really found out who he who he was, who he really liked playing. This one sounds like Lou Reed just having a blast with a bunch of guys that can make him sound better. Um, to me, it sounds like he joined a new band. Yeah, and absolutely. It's, yeah, he's he's. One of the guys among equals. Yeah. And and he's also, I think, talking about things with a freedom that he hadn't been right. able to before on uh-huh. a much larger stage. We're not talking about some band that nobody's going to listen to. Mm-hmm. We're talking about an album that's being produced by David Bowie yeah. that RCA's put money behind. Right. Um, it's going to get some significant notice. So um, I, I think that also was uh, that change benefited yeah. the album as well. All right. Well, Speaking me, of the album. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the guys that are playing on us. We already mentioned the biggies, uh, David Bowie, Nick Ronson, Herbie Flowers, briefly mentioned. He's the bass player. Um, he's a he's bass player. A bass player on the album. Well, he plays when he's not playing bass, he's playing tuba. Um, he played on actually on the first David Bowie album. And uh, I, pl- I believe he played on uh, Space Odyssey as well. And then he. Uh, Space Oddity. Space Oddity. Did I say Space Oddity? <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry, guys. yeah. Um, and then he played with um, a, on a, a lot of Elton John's first albums before he got they got D. Murray. And then another guy by the name of Klaus F- F- Foreman, who has played with John Lennon. He was a really good friend of the Beatles. You know what he's probably most famous for? What's that? He designed the cover for Revolver. That's right. Trevor Boulder. Yep. He plays trumpet on this album. And what is he? He he plays bass and trumpet uh, and uh, Hunky Dory. He's a a spider from Mars. He's the spider from Mars, yeah. Yep. And uh, and then, of course, the group of women, the Thunder Thighs. The Thunder Thighs, yeah. Yes, three three women, the Thunder Thighs. Um, We'll talk about them more when we get to the uh, the song they're prominent on. Um, Um, So, and Bowie plays... uh, keyboards and some of the acoustic guitar but the piano playing is done by mick ronson and it's great it's unbelievable yeah uh i've heard that rick wakeman might have played some of the stuff i did but there's a lot of rumors surrounding this album and most of them are not true besides being an amazing guitar player mick ronson was a exceptional piano player. oh he's great and yeah. strings as well oh know, yeah and he does all about. the string arrangements and there are some great string arrangements. this yeah. is where he i think he really came to his own as a string arranger 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to jump into this album, but we have a new feature. Each one of us has a piece of paper. We all have written down one word that describes the song that we're about to hear. We have not seen these until just now. I gave my paper to Jonathan J.M. Rowe. Tony gave his paper to me. Good luck reading it. <laughs> and Jonathan J.M. Rowe gave it to Tony. That's right. So we're going to start this now, and Tony's going to tell us what our producer's word was. Snarling. Well, let's see. We name the song. Oh, I'm sorry. This song is called Vicious. Side one, track one. Vicious, right. Jam's word was snarling. Tony's word was safe. <laughs> safe. I can explain it. Doug's word was autobiographical. Huh. We got kind of a hodgepodge there. We are. I, I was thinking there would be these times where we agreed. All right, Tony, what's safe? This is the most Velvet Underground-y song on this album, and I think it was a safe choice to start the album out, considering the kind of criti criticism he got on the first album. Let's knock it out of the park and make a song that people are going to go, oh, this is what I wanted the last album to sound like. So it was a safe choice. That's not to disparage a song in any way. And it was also a song that had been previously written while he was with the Velvet Underground, so it makes sense that it sounds so much like them. Here, here, Great, great, great. All right, Jonathan Jamro, you have uh, snarling. Snarling? Yes. Why did I say snarling? Uh, well, it's kind of odd because uh, you know where the the origin of the song is. Andy Warhol went up to uh, Lou Reed and said, "You need to write a song called Vicious." Yeah, and, and it was actually for a Broadway musical that yeah. Andy Warhol and Yves Saint Laurent were Yeah, they were working on. And so he wrote the song and uh he came up with and, and Andy Warhol said, Yeah, vicious, like you hit me with a flower. <laughs> and <laughs> And you do it every hour. And you do it every hour. And so <laughs> but yeah, just getting like that's oh, I'm so angry. You've hit me with a flower every hour. <laughs> and uh, that's as that's as mean as I can get writing a song talking about you hitting me with a flower so oh and then uh what did i say autobiographical autobiographical yeah i don't think he meant to be autobiographical but i can imagine a lot of people saying this is you man yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah um the song i think is great i mentioned the velvet underground thing i mean the i believe the riff is I don't know if he's ever come out and say it, but it's pretty much a reworking of Sweet Jane, if you listen to it, you know? Well, who's, yeah. who's playing that fast? Uh, well, the, the, it's got to be Ronson. It is. Ron, it's Ronson when playing that, that, uh, that, those little quick slashes over the verses and the yeah. choruses, which are great. To and me, then, that's what electricity should sound like. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> that's and, exactly what and I then, think. And then he also does that cool little noodling, crazed noodling at yeah. the end, after the choruses. Well, and we're going to say that on every song tonight. And then the, fade, the, way, the way the guitar fades out. But yeah, I, I when I hear Lou Reed's bit, the riff, it sounds it sounds vaguely like he's like oh, it does sound Velvet Underground, is it vague? right? Is yeah. it vague? 
Well, not vague. I mean, <laughs> vaguely like Sweet Jane. It's yeah. like a reworking of Sweet Jane to me. Um, so anyway, yeah, it's well, a great it, song. Yeah, it's, I love. I lo- I that's like a good way a to start an album. I think. I think it's I a great way. Yeah. Well, up next we have uh, Andy's chest. If I could be any one of the things in this world that bite Instead of a tangent ocelot on a leash I'd rather be a kite And be tied to the end of your string you, did, you didn't play the uh, bear, bear, hairy, know, bear, bear song part That's of That's all right. We don't need to hear that. Um, <laughs> and, on purpose. Uh, Tony? Yeah. You said silly. Yeah, it's a silly song. I mean, the lyrics are silly. I mean, it's about, it's it's inspired by Andy Warhol getting shot, a, an attempted assassination, and the lyrics just seems kind of silly to me. Um, I, I, I don't dislike it. Um, I think the bass line is nifty as heck. Yeah. And Bowie's vocals make this song. His back backing His vocals, make, vocals make this song. Yeah. Um, but uh, did, did you hear about how some people think it's based on this story where a man learned to do performance art with his bottom half that would pass gas and he learned to turn it into words and then his bottom half began to take over and the mouth moved down there and he she sh- shielded up the mouth oh no i thought it was the nose of the woman that was well that's what the song does but it's know. inspired by the somebody other thing. Said, i don't know if that's true or not um yeah anyway it's it's i don't know what'd you get jm what did <laughs> you wrote down t-rex i can i can see that i can see that um, it's not the last song that t-rex will be brought up yeah because I, I think there's i, I may have one but it, it's um should I read your word? Sure. Dynamic. I think it's dynamic um, because th- when the drums come in, it just surprises the hell out of me. Anyway, there's yeah. just, he, he does every now and then he will not, uh, drums won't come in as dynamically as it. And I, I like, I remember the first time I heard this song and it just, I was surprised when the drums came in. Yeah. Um, but it's a it's a fun song. I, I, it's one of my favorites on the it's, album. Again, it's I think uh, you know not putting too much emphasis on what the lyrics are about. I think they're kind of silly. That's why I said that musically, it's really interesting because yeah. as you're saying, the dynamic I get that T Rex I get it. It's it's the thing that's kind of cool to me about this song is the orchestration's fairly to me fairly sparse, but yeah. it's gritty. But then you've got Bowie's like uh-huh. angelic sheen yeah. over the top of it, and yeah. it shouldn't work. But it works. Well, yeah. it's like Ken Scott said, David Bowie may have been the ba- best background singer. Yeah, he's, in rock. his vocals on this album are so good. They well, are. he did a lot of good background singing for David yeah. Bowie. He yeah. did. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Next up is Perfect Day. Tony, you wrote this word, protect. Perfect. Oh, perfect. (laughs) I didn't stretch much because this song was one of those weird epiphany songs for me. I mean, I knew it, but in listening to it critically on this album, 
I heard it and I immediately played it again. And then I immediately played it again. I, this song is perfect. There's nothing at all bad about this song. Lou Reed's vocals are great on it. The orchestration on it is amazing. Watching him talk about Mick Ronson's orchestration on that classic albums yeah. documentary and the look it's like Lou just, Reed's hearing it for the first time. He just yeah. can't believe how good it sounds. It's kinda of, it's really kind of cool to watch him do that, you know? Oh and he it's plays a, up and would you expect to hear that if you bought this when it came out? No. Wait, no. This would cut you, this cut is, you off guard, wouldn't it? Yeah, this is no. You're right. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful song. Beautiful song. It was. A, I, it was released as a double A side for with Walk on the Wild Side. They were both. They were double A side singles. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about it when we go around the other for the other songs or the other words. But what do, I, yeah, what do you got there, Jam? Well, I got Hero. Um, a little curious why you would say. That was from you, Doug. Um, that means you can't read my handwriting. That says heroin. Ah. <laughs> well, I guess I didn't finish the word. <laughs> heroin, yes. I yeah. understand that. Yeah. <laughs> this um, is an argument that people have. I cannot, I cannot hear this can, song and not think that. Can I tell you what Lou Reed says about that? Well, I read what Lou Reed said about that, and Doug Cooper says he doesn't believe what Well, Lou I'll tell Reed you says. why I believe Lou Reed. There's no reason why he would lie about that. It's not like he's trying to impress somebody or whatever. Why would he say this? The, I, he says, he is, this, all the is this the one where he said, we're, I don't know what it's about? No, this me. is a song where he says, I'm going to quote, it's a 2000 interview, a 2000 interview. He says, you're talking to the writer, the person who wrote it. No, that's not true. I don't object to that particularly. Whatever you think is perfect. But this guy's vision of a perfect day was the girl, sangria in the park, and then you go home. A perfect day. Real simple. I meant what I said. I don't know why. I don't. I don't. Yeah, there's not a lot of obfuscation in this song. I, this song sounds like a guy describing. It sounds like <laughs> a sack of heroin. And, and no, then we go. Doesn't. Then we go see a movie. And, no, this and is about. This you is keep a, me hanging on. And this is to me about a guy who. Uh, that line, I've never understood that line. I will admit that I've never understood that you keep me hanging on line. There's a crash. No, I don't think so. I think you keep me hanging on. This is a guy. I've heard. This I think this heroin. is a guy who's yearning. For this is fantasy. He's yearning for this kind of life, and he hmm. doesn't have it. Yeah. So you keep me hanging on. Is he wants that ability to? You have that perfect day, and it gives him the energy to keep. That's what I see. I don't see this as anything. Yeah. I mean, you can. It, hey, he says you can do this. It's fine if you have that kind of. Uh, uh, well, I can see Lou it. Reed maybe strung out on heroin, trying to. <laughs> hey, what would be the perfect day? And no, it's, you, it is a perfect day, and then when it's over. That's when the song changes. It goes from... But that beautiful, those piano lines are just well, so... The, there's no question that the music's fantastic. The yeah. piano is It's great. weird that his voice works so well. His voice is perfect for it's this so song. It's so perfect for It's perfect song. for it. It's so emotive in a way that Lou Reed is not emotive, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, and, it's almost like he's just like, he's smiling the whole time he's singing it. Yeah. And well, maybe because he's on heroin. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but then, and then you've got that, that when he double tracks it on the vote, on the chorus, yeah. it's yeah. like I said, I, I found myself wanting to hear this song over and over and over again. This is also one of the songs that Klaus Vermin plays bass on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this, this song it's, was, it, it's the a execution song. was it's masterful. A, yeah, it's one of my favorite you know, songs it's, he's ever done. Is, is Bowie's voice in this at all? 
I don't think so. I, I think it's either. just Lou Reed. This song had, you know, w- when we did the Grateful Dead episode, we talked about this version of Ripple. Ripple, one of those songs that people want to, that lo- like it's kind of. Everybody you, wants to cover it. And it's also yeah. one of those songs that's kind of above the rest of what the band does. Yeah. So it yeah. has, this right. song is one of those songs for Lou Reed and it got a special treatment. It In 97, they did a version of it for the benefit of the Children in Need charity. And, and Lou Reed sings the beginning part of it, but it's also got, and he sings the end, but then it's got Bono, Bowie, Elton John, Tom Jones, Laurie Anderson, Shane McGowan, Tammy Wynette, Emmy Lou Harris, Dr. John, Evan Dando, Robert Cray, all of these other That's people all. on it. I'll put, I'll put the video on the website. It's amazing. The it's video really, really cool. Yeah. And the single went to number one in the UK and, and earned that charity $2.1 million wow. from that single. Um, and then I also already mentioned that Kirstie McCall and uh, Evan Dando did their own version of it. But uh, yeah, it's really, really cool. This is one of those songs that that transcends anything else this guy has ever done, in my opinion. I, I well, we have one more word, I think. What was my word? Pretty. Yeah. Well, what else do you want to say? Wow. I can't believe after all that. Well, I, we the, the reason that... The, pretty. Okay. But... <laughs> when does Lou Reed ever get associated oh, right. with pretty? He's not. <laughs> that would be uh, under these circumstances. That is definitely unusual. Yeah. All right. Well, up next is hanging round. Yeah. You got a word here I don't recognize. Gar? Gau? Glam. Oh, glam. Oh. Yeah. You heard some glam rock. Uh, this sounds this sounds like something. Uh, this sounds like Bowie could have cut this song to me. This could have been on on Ziggy Stardust and the Spire I'm, I'm surprised he didn't cut yeah. this song. Yeah. Uh this is to me sounds like Mick Ronson having the time of his life. <laughs> yep. And the uh, he's like he's been wanting to play so, this for a while. That I'm tired of JM's word was rocking. That's very close to what I almost put. Jam, you want to share with the audience what the host said? Uh, hanging round is finally. <laughs> I I feel like I went through a number of songs, and then here comes this rock and roll number. That <laughs> okay, there we go. So to me, it sounds like rock and roll on. Uh, loaded, where but it's done by really good well musicians. This is my favorite song on the album. So a great song to 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 go, um, to, to go back with Jam saying the last song is pretty, and when would you ever hear a song, the Lou Reed song, be described as pretty? I kind of feel that way about this song. I know I didn't use this word, but this song is catchy as hell, and you don't normally associate Lou Reed's music as being catchy but this song has a hook and it digs into your head and it doesn't want to let go yeah. well, and, and, and it's you know simple uh, i don't like to no, dance no. but you could dance to this. oh yeah. yeah yeah you really could and it sounds like even lou reed is going hey mick ronson thanks for <laughs> cheering me up i'm gonna sound a little bit more lively I, here it, that's what makes this thing rock yeah mick yeah <laughs> mick Mick. Okay, so that's Ron, Rono. Yeah. That's my favorite uh song on the <laughs> album. Yeah. And uh 
Well, I, I guess it sounds a little bit like a suffragette city, or it does. That's what I, does. I could, yeah, I could have easily does. have heard that on on one on particularly the Ziggy Stardust album. It yeah. does. It reminds me yeah. a lot of Suffragette City. Yeah, I probably because Mick Ronson plays on both of them. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't know why there are. <laughs> well, you just got that muffled sounds. Yeah, but you can tell the Lou Reed part, and you can tell the the Mick Ronson part because Mick Ronson's got that. You you can just tell that uh, Les Paul with that fuzz tone. That sounds Marshall like all this it, yeah. power he's holding back. Yep, exactly. He's so good at that. He is such a master of holding back on the and and he never interferes with a song. Nope. nope. There, there. This next song, um, <laughs> some of our folks might have heard this before. But this song is called "Walk on the Wild Side." Take a walk on the wild side. Said, "Hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side." And the colored girls go do 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 Okay, I've heard that one. Now, uh, Tony. Yeah. I think you wrote unlikely. Yeah. Because um, this it's this is an unlikely hit to me for a number of reasons. It's a Lou Reed song, and up until that point, he uh, in his career he wasn't exactly a hit machine. And the main reason is the subject matter. How in the hell did this song get played on the radio? I, I was doing some research on this. Do you know that McCartney? This is in the UK. McCartney had two songs banned because they referenced drugs. Um, well, one of them was political high, 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 um, which sex and drugs. And then another one, which is political, which is give, give Ireland back to the Irish. Alice Cooper schools out was dropped because of, uh, Mary Whitehouse, who was this conservative activist at the time. This song, I mean, it, it, it mentions, it mentions, um, transgender. It mentions, it mentions, (laughs) um, Male Lacio. prostitution. It mentions yes. Uh, what? But they the British didn't know what that term meant. That, yeah. Not not the term he uses. It mentions it's got drug. It's drug uses all over it. Um, but it's there. I mean, it's. I can I can imagine this is like Oak Willie's that bumper sticker yeah. that was on the back of a car yeah. where it said "Onward through the fog." And my mom thought that I love that just <laughs> powering through difficulties. <laughs> she had no idea it was what, a, no. a yeah it was a bumper sticker for a head shop yeah um, and I think that's probably what we had with the BBC yeah and, probably had no idea what this um, was you know Blue Reed didn't want to release it because of that he was worried that it would get banned and he was he had already had a history of not getting airplay. And yeah. Bowie was the one that said this needs to be the single, and RCA said this needs to be the single, and Lou Reed said okay, and it ended up being his biggest hit. It was peaked at number yeah. sixteen on the Billboard Hot 100, well, and, and it never went away. No, 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 never, no. And, I mean that's the one when I that was the only reason why I knew who Lou Reed was was because of this. I guess when I was like ten years old, I knew who Lou Reed was. Well, I was the, confusing. The other unlikely thing is. This seems like a smooth, slick production. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you say, you, I don't think a Lou Reed in this category of a super. And, and it's perfect for his voice. It, it's also one of those songs that 
seems remarkably longer than it really is. Yeah, not, it's I don't only mean like that, four minutes. I don't mean that in 12. a bad way. Yeah, it just seems it's only super like super long. It's like four minutes and thirty seconds. Yeah. Or not something. in a hurry to go anywhere. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's an amazing song when you when you if you watch that documentary while they made it. It is about all the people that he met at. In the factory. At the factory. Yeah. And Sugar Plum Ferry was a drug drug dealer. dealer. Um, Candy was supposed to be like this amazingly beautiful man. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, and and they say in the documentary that none of these, none of these men acted like men. They never, there was never any like, oh, I'm a man dressed as a woman. They were. They were full. Yeah. They never, they never. Um, They interviewed uh, Holly. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Holly's a bit of a mess. Uh, yeah, Holly me. looks like a bit of a mess. But and yeah. in that, that um, still look. What's it, Joe? Uh, Little Joe never once gave it away. Joe, uh, he was the, the slant, uh, dis, del, de la Sandro. De la yeah. Sandro. He yeah. played uh, in that movie um, Flesh. Flesh. Yeah. Flesh. Yeah. He he had uh, it, it reminded me of the same thing as uh, yeah what was that uh, midnight midnight yeah, cowboy, midnight cowboy. cowboy. well kinda. but a little grittier dirtier and yeah, that's if, the, you, yeah. is, if you can do that that's amazing that's, that's that's the thing about and we talked about this a little bit we broke our rule thirteen or whatever a little bit and talked about yeah. how Lou Reed is not afraid to kind of mire in the muck and grime and grittiness. It's beyond not afraid. It's it's like enjoyment the, uh, enjoyment of it. Yeah, it's like his, almost a celebration of. I that. figured out what but, a hypocrite I was uh, listening to this album because yeah. I thought number one, I can't stand people who wear sunglasses indoors. This is so this is so stupid. And then I remember Jeff Lynn. Uh, <laughs> I'm crazy about. And then I then my next one is what about all this. Uh, after hours, well, dark, Ian Hunter, gritty, yeah, all this nasty stuff, and then and then, and then I go, oh, Tom Waits. Tom Waits. <laughs> um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the other sort of fascinating thing about this, and it makes sense because of his point of view. There's no judgment in this. He's just describing these people without well, any sort of judgment. I think that's one a, of the things I love about his songwriting. There's never, well, later. <laughs> There was preaching in it, but yeah. there's not preaching in any of this this sort well, of stuff that he's talking about. We are, um, it's interesting though because he's saying goodbye to it, and you guys are so yesterday, yeah. and then the next moment he's celebrating it. I uh, I, I want to say JM's word, if I may, profane. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, I don't. Uh, that's the only thing I. I mean, I love it. I love the song, but I. It's a hard song for me to listen to, and it's a hard song. I mean, I've played it in bands before and it's a hard song for me to play in in bands well i'll tell you what jam i'm a little disappointed because i have an, on occasion made fun of bass players <laughs> and in this instant i think the bass player deserves double half of the writing credit double credit double credit because <laughs> he's playing two bases yeah well tell us about that jam that's, that's pretty a pretty cool amazing thing. story so he uh, herbie flowers was working for uh union wages at the time and so you got, uh, for every track you played on, you got paid the, the union rate. wage. You got yeah. paid a flat rate. So he <laughs> said, hey, uh, so he did the, the upright bass part, which is an amazing upright bass part. And he just said, hey, I've got an idea. I'm talking to Ken Scott, because I think everybody else was away. Right, and he right. said, and Ken Scott said, okay, wh- wh- what's your idea? He said, I'd like to put this uh, electric bass part 
on the uh, on over it, and it's just a simple like one to. He said he wanted to do it in tenths. You're right. So he just did it in tenths, and uh, it's a it's an amazing baseline, but it makes the song. Well, and he also got paid twice, right? Yeah, he got paid twice. Well, it's one of the most. I was trying to think of other baselines. Uh, maybe the one with Sonny and Cher. Um, with uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but uh, I thought of the I got, Queen. Um, it's uh, not I Got You, Babe. It's uh, uh, yeah, Queen. Queen. Another one, Bites the Dust, definitely is a recognizable and then, bass. Uh, uh, Vanilla Ice had a very recognizable bass. Well, that was also Queen. I <laughs> but I was thinking about another one, Bites the Dust, too. The do 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 do. What was the Sunny and Cher deal? Oh well. Call us up and tell us what I'm trying to remember. Um, and then, of course, this song has that that great sax baritone saxophone solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought Ronnie it was Ross. tenor, but I guess that, that's no. uh, David Bowie's uh, sax teacher. His teacher, it? Ronnie Ross, taught Bowie when he was a kid how to play the saxophone, and he's the one playing the saxophone on this. And, and I always thought it was a tenor until this. It's research. a really great. Well, and, that's kind of cool. Uh, the beat goes on. That's the yeah. Sunny and Cher yeah. song. Oh, that one. Yeah, you're right. I didn't know that was Bowie playing that sax. It's not Bowie playing the sax. Oh. <laughs> it's R- Ronnie Ross, who was who's the guy who taught Bowie how to play the oh, sax okay. when he was a kid. I was really um, impressed. Yeah, I mean Bowie can play the sax, um, but that's a great it on changes. Modern that, love. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and then the other f- kind of funny thing about this is so the Thunder Thighs, who are the female b- um, backup singers on this song, um, are three. White women, really British white women singing the quote unquote colored girl part. Um, of wow. course, that 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 actually did you know they recorded a version without the colored girl? They just said and the girls because in America, in America, they thought that they would have problems with using that term. I never heard it without that term, so I'm assuming it, it, it didn't have a problem. I never heard it without that other term either, but um, what up. Yeah, me neither. But yeah, they were they were three white women from from the UK who had gotten a pretty pretty good um, following reputation, or, or yeah. reputation as backup singers. And uh, yeah, so anyway. Well, well, do we have some other words out there? Uh, your word was enough. Did we talk about that? No, we didn't. Yeah, I, that was me just saying. This is one of those FM classics that i don't need to hear anymore and that's that doesn't fault this album at all it's just too too frequently yeah you know what i realized about that is i've stopped listening to terrestrial radio so much that these songs <laughs> you these don't songs, hear them they're, anymore. they're all they're all sort of new to me again I know, I you know that, i think that's what happened when we were listening to zeppelin i was like i haven't heard these songs in forever if i was listening to i've done radio, that too I, I i guess i have to blame uh the gym bars or the gym or <laughs> yeah. something like that all right up next, we have a tune called Makeup. Out of our closets Out on the streets Yeah, we're coming out When you're in bed It's so wonderful It'd be so Tony? Yeah. You said atonal. Yeah. Am I wrong? <laughs> I I don't particularly like this song very much. I I, I wish I did because it's kind of it's trying to be interesting, but uh, 
his delivery is just sort of, I don't know. This is one of the times I think his vocals don't really work very well on it. Um, and uh, in general, I just don't think it's very good. They're going for kind of a cabaret thing. And uh, I think I think that none of that energy. I think that no, no energy. I think the tuba is jarring in it. It doesn't work for me. Anyway, it's like the tuba walked into the session. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like, hey guys, hey guys, listen to this. <laughs> this is, I actually love the tuba, you know, but I agree with you. I think that the uh, if if Lou had been a little bit more energetic and yeah, his li- delivery of this, I, I think it would have been a great song. I, I will say I was so in, in listening to this album over the last couple of weeks i had this image in my head of this song in particular and it's just bear with me <laughs> i think of this uncle who's been kind of estranged from a family for a while for whatever reasons alcohol drugs maybe did some jail time he's welcome back into the fold they're at dinner they're having a family gathering and, and he finds a tuba <laughs> no at some point in the evening uh, the mom walks in and he's sitting down on the couch regaling her kids with these stories that nobody, like anybody socially aware wouldn't be telling kids. And he's doing it, but not because he's trying to corrupt them. That's just, he's just talking about his life. That's what I get. The image I have in my That's head is a narrator is, is that kind of guy. I, I, I That's think a pretty about, good image. Yeah. Uh, because, think, go ahead, I'm sorry. well, I got, I got kind of the same image. I just got a, an image of, Lou Reed waking up and watching some man putting makeup all over his face and about to go out and do the town. Well, and that brings us to your word, Jam, which is oompa. Well, I love... (laughs) So that's because you love the tuba in it. I do love the tuba in it, and I think of kind of... I think there's a... Who's playing the tuba? uh, Herbie Flowers. The bassist. Yeah. Um, he didn't double. No. Try to do the electric tuba. Yeah. <laughs> the electric tuba. <laughs> That's a that good name Klaus, for a band. Yeah, electric tuba. <laughs> Klaus uh, Klaus Vootman's doing the yeah. He's the playing bass. the bass on this. Um, but there's two songs I think of as cabaret on this album, and yeah. this is but one, of, one them, of them works and one, one doesn't, of them, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah. The thing to me is it this this song is very evocative. It does make you go like. I'm putting pancake on my face. The first layer of, of pancake and all that. It's, it's, it's you're, you're wondering what in the hell is going on. I'll tell on. you what, if I was, if I was a, a gay man in the early seventies and I heard the song for the first time, I would be like, Oh wow. Somebody's singing about this. And then I would also think, couldn't they have done a better song? Well, that's, that's how think about this. Philadelphia freedom. Yeah. Elton John. Yeah. That's the big anthem. Yeah. This has the words. Yeah. We're coming out. Right. Of our, it's, it sounds like a. Right. It sounds like an anthem. But right. then we go. Oh, boom, boom, boom. Yeah. The <laughs> only time he sounds urgent about it is the very last time he says we're coming out. But it's, the thing is that we're coming out. It's just more like, I don't care. I don't want to come out to the world. I want to come out to my friends that are in the neighborhood. I don't, care I, I don't know. I get a I, different feeling I, about I, that. I just. Of course, I'm more ill-equipped to <laughs> discuss that topic than anyone I know, yeah. but yeah. we got one more word, I think. Yeah, your word, Doug. Your word is covered. 
you know, I think he's already covered this topic sufficiently by this time of the. Yeah. Well, again, it's just I, I, it, it just seems you're it, right. It seems like an afterthought. This song for something that obviously wasn't. I don't think it was supposed to be. No, but it feels that way. I, I and I, I'm, I'm not, not sure. Like I agree. I, agree. I, I think that he did not pull it off as well as he could have. Yeah. Well, well you figure sure. you got him and Bowie on the team. Why aren't they making this a yeah better ver- better deal? I, I don't, I don't understand what he's. It's if it was somebody else, you'd think he was making fun of the whole thing. You would. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Up next, that's a big one. Satellite of Love. Do you think that's the favorite song of the people who really love this album? Maybe. I think it deserves better. It only hit 119 on the charts, and it deserves much, much better than that. This is a great song. It's this something else. is the song that turned me into a Lou Reed fan. I could see that. I mean, this song is catchy. It's tuneful. You've got that that end that end bit where Lou Reed, of course, even slobbers all over it in that documentary with Bowie singing yeah. that 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 really high note, which is yeah. just remarkable. It really is when you it hear really it. Is. I'm just it gets not all just that he, yeah, you know? and not just that um, he did he did he had a harmony. With yeah, it. and yeah. and this was one of the songs that was re- this was uh, actually demoed for Loaded back in 1970, uh-huh. but didn't make the album. Thank God. Thank God I, they did because no, it is terrible. It is not as anywhere um, near as this, good. Yeah, needed boy. Yeah, yeah. the uh, it, it's it's kind of ironic that one of Bowie's best vocal performances is on someone else's album. Oh, it's yeah. yeah. And the song supposedly about jealousy or obsession. I I don't get that with the lyrics, but maybe I'm just dense. I I was thinking on my own about what it's like to be a satellite. You're just obsessed uh, with the thing you're you're uh, circling around. You're circling around. That makes sense. I get it now. Okay, um, I am. But dense. at the same time, this is everything's about space because this is uh, <laughs> shortly after landing on the moon, and um, this had original uh, different lyrics with uh, right, was yeah. it we stepped on the moon's right. face or yeah, it was uh, I've been the I've been told part was done was very different. Wait so I, I think that uh, the analogy with the satellite was in everybody's face. We had yeah. two thousand and one, a space odyssey, and this, all of that. This is another there. song that just digs into your head, and you can't shake it after you hear it. You walk, gonna walk around. You hear this song, you're gonna walk around all day with it going through your head. Yeah. Well, that's it, funny that you said that because the guy who wrote this word on this uh, paper, Tony, uh-huh. said catchy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is good. Tony. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, it is. It is catchy. Um, let's see. JM's word is menacing. 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 Well, okay. Going to Doug's satellite thing is like I'm the satellite of love. I'm constantly I, looking. No, at it is about. It is like about a stalker. Kind of, yeah, it yeah. is a kind of stalker. I get that. Okay. Yeah, and uh, but still, I I think it's. One of the greatest songs about stalking ever. The string arrangements on it are so amazing. They're not overdone. I think that this is where Mick Ronson was really hitting his stride as a string arranger. Um, 
and you watch that uh, documentary, there's really not that many strings on it. It's not like a full orchestra. It's that they isolate the cello parts. They isolate the viola parts. And it's, I guess that's Mick Ronson playing piano. I've heard it's Rick Wakeman, but uh, Rick Wakeman's not on the album anywhere. So I'm not sure why. He's not, but I don't know. I've heard. I mean, by this time, Rick Wakeman wasn't dealing with Bowie anymore either. He was full fledged dealing with. Yes. So I can't imagine he's a session guy on this. I think it's Ronson. Well, I want to share something that nobody cares about. And that's this idea that I came up with for a song that would be called the Rocher line, which is a concept in astronomy that if a satellite gets too far, uh-huh. It flings off into Never Neverland. Uh-huh. If the satellite gets too close, it Crashes. breaks up and turns in. That's why, it's like the satellites that got too close on Saturn, you can see now they're rings. That's what happens to them. The tidal forces destroy them and they become rings. But a, a true romance where the satellite is just the right difference. Uh, anyway, that doesn't have anything to do with this. <laughs> What's Doug's word? Doug's word is Bowie. I, I I can't hear this. It's I have to keep slapping myself and say no. This is not a David Bowie album. <laughs> yeah, his, vo- his vocals are so great on this. Well, it, yeah. the music sounds like him. The yeah, production sounds like yeah. him. The yeah. only thing that doesn't sound like him a little bit is Lou Reed's voice. But it it, it doesn't sound that much not, not like yeah. him. This yeah yeah. When Lou Reed, th- this is the thing that's fascinating to me. The guy could sing when he wants to. It's not like his voice is bad. He can actually carry a tune. It's just sometimes he doesn't. Yeah. Well, and and his range is limited, but it that's is. not the same as being a bad singer. No, it's not at all. Right. He's got a. I mean, big, Billie fat... Holiday couldn't hit. She didn't go out of what one octave. She was an alto, firm alto. She could not but her, sing. It. But Lou Reed's <laughs> voice is fat. Yeah. It's not. He's yeah. not having any problem with the thin. He's his pitch is good. Uh, he just can't do high and low, yeah. right? And he doesn't. He doesn't try to do like Springsteen every now and then. Tries to go out of his range. Well, and, and he, he he Springsteen has taught himself to do what he wasn't born to do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. All right, roller skate. We're going to rock me like a wagon wheel. Just oh, it's not that most, song. Just saying most of us aren't, aren't born to roller skate. I was just wondering if that's what Springsteen taught himself to do. I was making it funny. I know. That was very, very funny, but James <laughs> cut the part where we were all laughing. <laughs> <laughs> Won't you be my way? That's a tune called Wagon Wheel. Um, that sounds like it's from a different record. <laughs> yeah. It really does yeah. sound like it's from a different record. It's, not, it's, it's uh, it, just on first listening, I thought this is a, the biggest text or T-Rex ripoff I've ever heard in my life without the energy of a T-Rex song. <laughs> I thought it was the biggest Dylan ripoff I've ever heard, but now that Doug reminded me that Bob Dylan wrote a song called <laughs> Wagon Wheel. <laughs> well, uh, Tony, yeah. your word is underwhelmed. 
Yeah, this or um, underwhelming. Underwhelming. Underwhelmed is fine. Yeah, this song just. This is one of my least favorite songs on this album. Um, from the moment that it's it it sounds the the production sounds muddy. It doesn't sound the way that some of the other songs. That spoke spoke is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, I think Lou Reed's vocals are good on this song, if I can say something positive. But it's one of the weaker songs, I think. Um, Anyway, I, you know, speaking of, um, real quick, speaking of rumors we've talked about, there's a big rumor that Bowie wrote this song. Yeah, I heard didn't. that too. Heard that too. Um, yeah. If I were Bowie, I'd probably not want to have credit for it either. But it's, uh, there's actually proof that he didn't because there's a recording of Lou Reed in his apartment talking to Richard Robinson. And, uh, and he's talking about the fact that Bowie wants to, is it Richard Robinson? I take that back. It's somebody else he's talking to. And he's talking about how, um, Bowie wants to record his next album and he actually plays a demo of this song on that recording. So it's before they even got in the studio to start doing this. Lou Reed was already, already had the song ready. Um, anyway. It reminds me that what I think of is Lou Reed had this brother-in-law who wrote a song and had some background singers that he said, Hey, come on, can we just do one little number on this album? <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't fit anywhere on this record. No, 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 no. It doesn't fit. Um, I don't, it's. Should I, we talk about your word, Jam? Yeah. And I, uh, shoop. Yeah. That, my single that word was shoop. It's like, okay. It's, shoop. Up, that's shoop what up. you just want to do. You just want to put that word. Uh, I guess it's spoke because I heard, but my hearing is so terrible. Yeah. I, spoke. I, spoke. I couldn't Because it's me. wagon wheel, right? Spoke. Yeah, I know. I, I, There's I, I not a shoop. Like, <laughs> I was really hoping that was not the word. You spoke. thought it was shoop, shoop. Yeah. It sounds like, you know, it just reminded me of uh, something that would be on um, uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. I mean, it, it, it does sound like a throwaway. With but, some cheesy girl singing in the background. Yeah, I mean, I don't like it, but it almost sounds like it could have been, like, I could see Conway Twitty doing a song, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, that's a stretch, but I could see that, too. Yeah. He's yeah. talking about tight blue jeans and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> spoke, spoke. Okay, well, let's get the rest of the words out, and we'll move on. <laughs> What's uh, Doug's word? Uh, Doug's word is scraps. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. All right. Up next, New York Telephone Conversation. New York Conversation rattling in my head. Oh, my, and what shall we wear? Oh my, and who really cares? Just a New York conversation, gossip all of the time. All right. Tony says fun. Yeah, I mean, it's a fun song. Come on. It's, uh, I, I like this song a lot. Um, I think, uh, I actually think this one fits well with the album. I do too. I think the, the, the the moments where Lou Reed and Bowie's voices are singing at the same time is it's a <laughs> it's so it's, di- the, the dichotomy of it's, it, but it's so, so it's so great. Um, I know, like he's so bored, and yeah. and Bowie is so like, no, this yeah. is so much fun. Yeah, We're Bowie's dying. having a blast. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, maybe Bowie's 
maybe Bowie is being the other guy on the line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a fun little song. Um, that's why I said fun. So. It's a great song. Absolutely. Well, it is, is Bowie, is Bowie uh, uh, Warhol on the other line? I think going so. Going on and on. And uh, <laughs> this is Lou so. Reed yeah. giving um, him the... Uh, the bad yeah. jams word was society. Well, I think that's. I mean, as much as, yeah, I'm. I'm. The reason why I put that down is because I wanted to say, this is a song about Andy Warhol. I think, and well, a lot of people do. I know as as much as Andy Warhol hated society, he loved being a part of society, and he loved making fun of society so much. But it was... Uh, is that true? I think there's a difference between making fun of society and what he did, which well, was I kind think of that, but, celebrating the mundane I know, I think that, I think that, but I think that's what Lou Reed kind of had as, yeah, you hate this? You really hate it? Okay, I'm going to be the Andrew Warhol okay. on the phone. You're, and David Bowie is going to be the, you know, the Jerry Hall or whoever on the other end. And going, yeah, I just I, we just think you're so... Fabulous! We think you're so perfect, and yeah. Andy Warhol's kind of like, yeah. I don't. I really don't want to hear that. I really, and but secretly, Andy Warhol really wants to hear that. And I think that that's where some of the genius of uh, Lou Reed is. I mean, it's one of my favorite songs he's ever written. Lyric. It is dripping with sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm surprised to hear that. <laughs> Any other words? Ingratitude. Yep, it is. <laughs> I mean, he owed a lot to Warhol, and this is pretty uh, much a... Uh, well, he wrote about his gun wound. That's not good enough. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I Somebody gets me a career that I had no chance of getting on my own, I would try to show a little more gratitude. Gratitude. Well... <laughs> yeah, but he also foisted Nico on them. I don't know. That's kind of a... Didn't that... A, it's kind of a... I don't know if that was the worst thing he ever did to them, because he did have some... I, she, she was chops. And, I, I and then know. she, who knows if anybody would pay attention to him without her on the stage. Uh-huh. I, I just, I, it's hard for me. I feel the same way about her a little bit. And this is not, a, this is a diversion, but I want to say this. Um, not as much, but a, feel sort of Yoko y about her because. Sure. Her version of these days, I want to crash into a tree when i hear it um why is that oh my lord and just the version she does on that of the velvet underground songs they're great songs and her version of femme fatale it sounds like she couldn't be more bored singing it well that's one of the reasons um, why i like did it she so understand much. what it was i guess i don't know um <laughs> well back to this album yeah sorry i'm so free I was in I had horns and fins
well, it's not red. This is someone's take on it is that, uh, he thinks this song is about Lou Reed, uh, giving hippies the business. Like it's an anti hippie song. Cause he, I mean, the Velvet Underground hated hippies anyway. If you read the lyrics, you can see that kind of about how when he's saying I'm free and I'm, na- you know, nature's son or whatever, that, that, that it's, he's it's actually like poking, poking them fun. in the eye. Yeah, yeah. Poking fun at that concept. I don't know if that's what, I have no idea really what this song is about, but, uh, I know Mick Ronson's great in it. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, speaking of that, what did Doug Cooper write? Doug Cooper write, wrote, Thank you, Ronson. <laughs> That's more than one word, but I'll take it. I cheated. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 to I, me, this sounds like Ronson and Lou Reed having the time of their lives. Yeah. I, I wouldn't want to hear very many minutes of this song without, without Ronson. I think you're right yeah. about that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It, There's no he's, way. He's that, shy about showcasing his talent, but thank God he does a little bit here. Yeah. J, JM's word is claps. I like that. Well, I wanted to. See if you would. Uh, I listened to the song a million times and the claps didn't jump out at me, so maybe that's something. Uh, <laughs> wow, about. ladies and gentlemen, this is the first time. <laughs> yeah, Tony didn't notice the hand claps at the at the about halfway I was through. Maybe the distracted song. by yeah. the ooh ooh and the guitar playing on it. I don't know. So. Well, the ooh, I mean, everything about this song is like, hey, let's just turn this into a hit. And uh, I don't know. It sounds to me like I, this, a, the reason I said pre-punk is it feels the same way to me. It's a different kind of sound but it feels of that same well it's got that muffled guitar but, but part it, it feels it's of that same universe as yeah. the dolls new york dolls yeah. stuff too yeah um, yeah it does sound um, like the new york dolls could have easily have done this song yeah lou, lou reed seems a little far off the ground for himself on that wreck on this song yeah. yeah i'll agree with you but he sounds like he really wants to have good a good time with this it, it, it to me this is one I think he forgot to be uh, cynical and yeah, <laughs> yeah. He maybe he's just so happy about being out of his previous engagements with managers and band members. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's a great song. That's uh, one of my favorites on the on the album. Up next, good night, ladies. Now all night long, you've been drinking your. To Kihila But now you've sucked Your lemon peel dry So why not get high And good night Ladies, ladies, good night all right, Tony. Yeah. It appears that you think this song is hilarious. It is. Is it not funny? It is funny. This song is funny. This is Lou Reed. Um, I mean, I don't I don't think people talk enough about how cuz he's so caustic and sarcastic that he can act, he's actually funny. And uh and this song, the lyrics are funny, especially this the latter part. I this song feels like two different songs to me. Um, I mean it is, but the, the first part always seemed to me to be about um, almost about, this is going to sound weird, about substance abuse. So the whole good night ladies is a guy who's, I'm, I'm checking out for the evening. Good night ladies. And then the second part is this guy who's maybe post substance abuse and he's by himself and he's trying to figure things out and he's spending a Saturday night 
watching the news, eating TV dinners. But that part, every time I hear the whole thing about the seven o'clock news and yeah. the TV dinners, I crack up. It's funny. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I I like this song a lot. Um, I really do. I like it a whole lot. I think I it's a too. great way to close this album out. I think the whole the the genius of using. The tuba works on this song, yeah, and the does. genius of and Herbie Flowers. It's implied in that documentary. He's the one that said we need to bring in a, a, a Dixieland, yeah, Dixieland, and yeah, then yeah. And and it works. It works so well, so good. Um, it felt a little bit like um, I don't know, like a happier version of a of a Tom Waits song to me. You yeah, know? that's a good way to um, put it. Yeah, but anyway, uh. Except Tom Waits. Has Tom Waits ever written a song about being at bar at a bar at closing time and then going home alone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he doesn't sound as joyous as this. This guy's just he's he's kind of I mean not joyous, but he's like just resigned to the fact that that's my life and he's not really upset about it. Um, JM's word is cabaret. This is the most cabaret sounding song I think. I mean, you, it's. I could it's see very cabaret. Well, I could see somebody in fishnet stockings and standing Lou up Reed on top, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, standing on top of the piano singing a song, um, and singing it in like a German accent. You uh-huh. know, um, I agree with you. It's it's a great song. It's one of my favorites on the album. Me too. Me too. All right, Doug's word is denouement. Denouement. <laughs> the hell is that? That's how you spell that word. That was Dumont. Okay. Anyway, they don't. You know, they don't know how to say words right over there in uh, France. France. I. It just reminds me of the credits are rolling and uh, yeah. the show's over. No, it's absolutely. And I think it does a good job of taking an album that. May have some bitterness in it. Yes. May have some sardonic uh, views of the world and kind of uh, shaking it loose. May make you feel like you need a shower, <laughs> and uh, it it kind of puts your your spirit. It reminds me if I watch a real scary movie, uh-huh. I'll put on like Warner Brothers cartoons afterwards, <laughs> to, so I, I won't think about demons sitting at the end of my bed trying to hold me down and keep me from breathing. <laughs> Well, that's that's the Sabbath album we were talking about. <laughs> yeah. That's anyway, funny. gentlemen, that was a great, great album. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan J M Rowe. Thank you for your suggestion. Yeah. Um, I want to just real quick before we wrap things up. You guys know about the 1979 fight that Lou Reed and Bowie got into? No, I do not know that. Well, famously. They got into a fight. Uh, it was after a show at the Hammersmith Odeon in 1979. Bowie Reed and some of the band go back to a restaurant to hang out afterwards. And at some point in the evening, Lou Reed, as he's apt to do, asks David Bowie if he'll produce his next album, which would have been The Bells. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Bowie says, certainly, I'll do it on one for for one thing. You have got to straighten up and sober up. And Lou Reed didn't take that very kindly and swung and threw a punch at David Bowie. And they got into a fight in the restaurant. They ended up going outside, continuing the fight, continued all the way back to the hotel. It was like this huge blow up because Lou Reed wasn't 
particularly fond of Bowie telling him he needed to sober up. Because I guess Bowie at that time had just cleaned up. Yeah, and was like, just, listen, yeah. I know what I'm talking about here. And it was said, I think, out of really concern for the guy. And, of course, when you're an addict, uh, you don't take that kind of stuff lightly. And he, Especially if you're a Lou Reed. <laughs> yeah, pop Bowie in the yeah. face. Did they ever reconcile? I believe so, yeah. yeah. Wow. They never worked together again, though, after this, did they? But yeah, it seems like Lou Reed was good at burning bridges. I think so. I think we can settle on that. <laughs> well, y'all ready to do a little reviewing? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm going to go first to uh, PPT. PPT. Power Pop Tony. Ah, I like that. I like that better than Encyclopedia Tony. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll use the other one next time. Then. <laughs> so, as you know, we're going to give a personal feelings based uh review of the album and then we're going to give the uh cold-hearted critic review tony yeah what do you think um i i say this a lot and i'm going to say it on this i think this album sets out to do exactly what they were trying to do this this is what this should have been what his debut what lou reed's debut was basically announcing to the world that this is what the post velvet underground Lou Reed is going to sound like. This is what he has in store for you. Um, it's, it's some of the same stuff, but we're going to take it a little different trip. Um, and I think it works really well. The production on it is great. Save for one song. Uh, Bowie's vocals on it are incredible. I was surprised at how good Lou Reed's vocals were on a lot of this stuff. And Mick Ronson's strings and guitars are great. Uh, all everyone on this album, when they're uh, when they're playing on all cylinders, they're doing a great job. So critically, I'm going to give this I'm going to give this a four eight, which surprises me because I going into this I was not looking forward to this album, and I'm going to give my personal review i'm going to give this a four eight as well i did Whoa. not i did not think Whoa. i was going to like this um i knew a few songs i didn't listen to it um i i, I was i mean you can ask my wife i was complaining about another jm album that i'm really going to struggle with and <laughs> and and i have the more i've listened to this album the more i've enjoyed it um the songs have kind of seeped into my subconscious i really really liked it I, I i thought i would be talking about how dirty i felt and how i wanted to take a shower after it and i don't feel that way after these songs i don't know why that is um with the exception of makeup um and i'm not saying that makes me feel dirty i'm just saying i don't like that song very much and wagon wheel i think every other song in this album is fantastic so i'm gonna give it a four eight so that's two four eights from ppt uh, I'm going to go to myself next since I didn't pick this record. I like Tony went jam. Why are you why do you, why are you doing this to us? Um I didn't expect to like this very much. I thought I'd be um I'd be all right with it, but um I I think that they did make some good good hits. Uh they 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 connected on a number of these and I'm, I'm going to give it a critically, I'm going to give it a 4-4. A four, four. Uh, personally, uh, I don't like the subject matter of these songs at all. <laughs> I don't want these, th I don't want to be in this universe. Uh, so I'm going to go 3-8 personally. Um, now, having said that, I recognize that this is a good production. Uh, 
Ronson is amazing on this. I think I have a new respect for Lou Reed as a singer that I didn't have before. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so most most of the personal discount I give on this is just a, a situation where this is not uh, some. This is, these are not topics I want floating around in my brain. Um, so, uh, having said that, uh, I'm not sad JM brought this up at all. Jonathan JM Rowe, you picked this album. I did. So, I'm going to give my uh, critics rating first. It's, I'm going to give it a four or five as a critic. I think there are parts that, um, under scrutiny, they did, they do fall apart. I think there was, you know, um, there were some songs that probably could have been left off this canon. So there's the first album, this album in Berlin are probably my three favorite albums that Lou Reed has done. And then one, another one that came out, New York in 1989 is, uh, I think. Is New York the one after he sobered up? Yeah, yeah, that's the one that's got Dirty Boulevard yeah, on it. Yeah, and all that. Um, where Lou Reed went kind of back to his his roots. But this, to me, is the, the epitome of glam. It, it's the epitome of what um, people like Mott the Hoople were trying to do. And it, it, it's... There's so much. The instrumentation is inter- is interesting. The the string arrangements are amazing. Uh, so like I gave it a four or five as a critic. As my my personal rating, um, I'll be honest. I um, so I'm going to give it a four eight as a. Thank uh, God I didn't want to be the highest vote on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> does Does that mean you're going to pick New York? Uh, so that it can become high again after many listens. <laughs> There's going to be New York's going to come in eventually, but you might like that album better, subject matter wise. Yeah, I have that album. It's um, a good one. It's a fan, fine album, but I think this is where Lou Reed just kind of like, okay, let somebody else guide me for a little while. It, it seemed like when he was with the Velvet Undergrounds, he was trying to be so much in control that he really like was not. The production and all, 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 everything sounded muddy. All the instrumentation sounded just sort of like out there. This one just sounds so cohesive. Um, he let McRon- McRonson take over so much. And I read that David Bowie really just did background vocals, and it, most of it was McRonson doing the, the production. Well, I think that's fairly obvious. That's pretty obvious, that yeah. It's, yeah, McRonson and the engineer working yeah. Working their magic on this. So, yeah, I'm gonna, Bowie lent his name yep. and his voice. Just like he, Andy Warhol did before, but um, not his voice. You know, <laughs> uh, I forgot to mention this. Lou Reed initially was pretty peeved about the amount of um, attention Bowie and Ronson got on this. Yeah. Obviously, if you watch that making of, he softened considerably. Because oh, yeah. I don't think, I think any sober person looks back on this and goes, yeah, they deserve all the credit they got for making this sound mm-hmm. the way it did. I think that Mick Ronson was probably the only sober person in the, and maybe Ken Scott, but yeah. there were a few sober people in the in the room. But yeah, four eight, fantastic album, one of my favorites. Well, thank you, JM. Mm-hmm. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of 
This is Vinyl Tap. We would like to remind you to look us up on our fabulous web page, tappingvinyl.com. <laughs> well, we just did a glam rock album. <laughs> uh, you can also look us up on our Facebook group page. And we're on Instagram. And we're also on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. Next week, we'll be doing an album by the remarkable singer-songwriter Elton John. One of his lesser-known albums, Tumbleweed Connection. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. This is Vinyl Tap for all the podcasts go to 11. And reminding you, walk on the wild side. I'm sorry, everybody. Alexa decided she wanted to be on the show today. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Talking about Ziggy Stars. Um, we can't say that anymore because that Alexa's name is Ziggy. The guy that was <laughs> the guy that was with the spider. It's like saying it's like saying Macbeth. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you a question. If an individual is putting out an album and they get Nick Ronson and David Bowie <laughs> to help, Mick Ronson. I said Nick. Mick. Oh, it's Mick? Mick. I thought I said Mick last time no. and you switched. You said Nick. <laughs> oh, we need to cut that. Um, <laughs> that's yep. a surprise. Yep. Anyone else? Anyone else? Uh, Trident Studio, which we talked about um, kind of tangentially like, during the Bowie versus Bowie. We talked episode. about it on the Queen episode. And the Queen too, episode. Yeah, Queen we right. talked about it two minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> We did. We did. Oh, sorry. We did. That's a beauty. Uh, I might. I might produce this one so James can't take that off. <laughs> sorry. It's. I, don't know, I once made up a lie about this uh, country in Africa that would use inflections from their gas to imply a question. So they or, ate beans all the so time. So they go. Uh, I said they had a, a, a diet of tubers, and when they were talking and to indicate a question, they go. <laughs> I told this to this girl, and she believed me. She goes, "That's fascinating." <laughs> Let's try it That's out. Pretty, <laughs> you should probably. <laughs> anyway, yeah. uh,